Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Emma Walker? First, I'll look at the background in this case. I'll move to the timeline of the crime, then offer my analysis. This case takes place in Knoxville, Tennessee. In the fall of 2014, 14-year-old Emma Jane Walker attended Central High School as a freshman. She was described as vibrant, warm-hearted, beautiful, energetic, and outgoing. Emma was a cheerleader and ended up meeting a football player named William Riley Gall. He went by his middle name. Riley was a junior. He was described as a normal guy who liked video games, but he may have been a little shy. The pair started a romantic relationship, although at first they were closely supervised by Emma's parents. Riley was occasionally permitted to come over to Emma's family home to hang out. Emma's parents thought that Riley was polite and relatively normal. Emma's friends were not as impressed. Riley didn't talk to them, which they found to be a little unusual. Over time, as the pair started to go out and engage in other activities, like sex, Riley started to become possessive and clingy. For example, he was telling Emma what to wear. Their relationship started to become tumultuous, characterized by frequent dramatic breakups, followed by them reuniting. During a few arguments, Riley sent messages which were disturbing. He wrote that Emma was dead to him, he would check the obituary, he said he hated her, he referred to her using unkind terminology. Riley would wait outside the supermarket where Emma worked and wait for her to get off work. Sometimes he was there for hours. Eventually, Emma's parents had enough of Riley's unusual and aggressive behavior. They banned Emma from seeing him. They took away her cell phone so she would not be able to talk to him. Her parents told her to break up with Riley, but Emma would not do it. Emma was still able to communicate with Riley through an iPod he had supplied to her. Riley graduated from high school in 2016 and enrolled in a nearby college. In the fall of 2016, Emma started her junior year of high school. Near the end of October 2016, Emma's parents grounded her, only permitting her to leave the house for school or cheerleading. This was in an effort to prevent her from seeing Riley. The relationship between Riley and Emma appeared to be over. 
Emma told one of her friends that she and Riley were done for good. Emma believed that she deserved better and a romantic partner. Riley didn't take the news too well. His friends said that he was depressed and had mood swings. When he was in his dorm room at college, he consumed excessive quantities of Vicodin in an apparent effort to bring an end to his life. This may have been a genuine attempt to end his life, or it may have been an effort to attract attention from Emma. This takes us to November 18, 2016. Emma had obtained permission from her parents to attend a party at a friend's house. That night, she told a friend that she was receiving bizarre text messages from an unfamiliar phone number. The messages read, Come outside if you don't want to see a loved one get hurt. Go to your car with your keys. Go alone. I've got someone you love. If you don't comply, I will hurt them. Emma texted back and threatened to call the police, but the messages did not stop. One read, If you'd like to hear his crying and screams, give him a call. Another message indicated that Riley had been dropped off outside. Emma and her friend investigated, and they found Riley lying face down in a ditch near the house where the party was. They pulled him up, at which time Riley claimed he didn't know what happened. He was kidnapped. He was holding his head as if he'd been struck in the head. Emma told Riley, we just broke up. Leave me alone. Riley walked away. He called a friend and told him the kidnapping story. The friend would say that it appeared as though Riley had been crying. The next morning, Emma returned home. She texted friends saying there was a stranger at her doorstep. Someone who was dressed in black was ringing the doorbell repeatedly. Emma texted that she thought she was going to die. Emma also texted Riley saying, I hate you, but I need you right now. Riley responded, I'm coming, I'm speeding, just give me a minute. Emma's mother would return to the house to find Emma and Riley in the front yard. She told Riley to leave. He initially resisted, saying he was there to help, but eventually he departed. Now we move to November 20, 2016. Riley borrows a phone from a friend. He sends a number of messages to Emma and calls her. 60 attempts at communication altogether. He was begging for Emma to talk to him, to take him back. The last attempt to communicate was at 12.06 a.m. on November 21. Riley made his way to Emma's house. He was in the possession of a Glock 9mm semi-automatic pistol he had stolen from his grandfather. At about 3 a.m., he shot twice through the wall of her bedroom. One bullet struck her in the head, killing her, and the other had struck her pillow. At 6 a.m., Emma's mother went into Emma's room to wake her up. Emma was unresponsive. Her mother called 911. The police would find Emma dead from a single gunshot wound to the head, and they would find two bullet holes in the wall. William Riley Gall was a suspect right away. He posted messages on social media. One read, Rest easy now, sweetheart. I love you forever and always. The investigation revealed that a 9mm was used to kill Emma, and Riley had stolen a 9mm pistol from his grandfather. Riley asked the friend how to remove fingerprints from a gun. Riley was brought in for questioning. During the interview, he only referred to Emma Walker as the girl. The police said that Riley was emotionless and disconnected. His narrative seemed deliberate and rehearsed. His alibi was that he was at a friend's house. He denied stealing his grandfather's pistol and said he never asked anyone about removing 
fingerprints from a firearm. After leaving the interview, he texted his friend asking why he told the police about the gun. Apparently, Riley had showed the gun that he had stolen to his friend. The police set up an operation to recover the weapon with the assistance of two of Riley's friends. The friends were both wired for audio, and they were given a key fob with a camera in it. Riley asked to meet with them. During the meeting, Riley denied being the killer, but asked for his friend's assistance in getting rid of the gun and other evidence, including gloves and black clothing. The police were able to recover the evidence. Riley was arrested and charged with murder. At his trial, Riley's defense attorney went with the story that Riley only fired the pistol in an effort to frighten Emma and get her attention. Riley was convicted of first-degree murder, as well as reckless endangerment, theft, stalking, and possession of a firearm during a dangerous felony. He was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 51 years, when he would be 71 years old. 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a conman. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Now moving to my analysis. Riley seemed normal at first, and the relationship between him and Emma also seemed normal and expected. They seemed like a typical high school couple. Nobody really looked at them initially and thought anything was wrong. Their relationship changed, however, and would be characterized by a pattern of dramatic breakups and reunions, but this is not incredibly uncommon for people who are dating in high school. When Riley started to become controlling, people were taken off guard. No one expects that people in that age range will enter into highly destructive relationships. After this, we see an escalating pattern of emotional dysregulation, stalking, drama, and even more controlling behavior. After the relationship ended for the final time, Riley's behavior becomes even more bizarre, dramatic, and extreme. He was looking to get attention in any way he could, which included playing the victim. 
He orchestrates this desperate fake kidnapping scheme, pretending that he was kidnapped and dropped off where Emma was. He told his friends not to call the police. They were concerned because, again, he claimed he was just kidnapped. So it seemed unusual that he didn't want the police involved. Usually people are alarmed when they're kidnapped. When playing the victim didn't work, he tried to play the hero. He went by her house dressed in black to scare her, hoping that she would call him for help. Emma had her suspicions about Riley. She seemed to know that that kidnapping situation was a hoax, but the fear she was experiencing overrode those concerns in that moment. She called for his assistance. Ultimately, however, the couple did not reunite. Riley tries one last time. He gets that friend's phone and makes all those calls and sends all those text messages. But again, he is unsuccessful. This pushes Riley to increasingly dangerous behavior. He decides to murder Emma. Using a gun he had stolen from his grandfather, he makes his way to Emma's house and shoots her through the exterior wall of her bedroom. A highly unusual method. I'm surprised he was able to actually strike her in the head with a bullet from outside the house. The difficult part, of course, would be how to aim the weapon. My understanding is that Riley had observed on a prior occasion that when Emma was in her bed, her head lined up with the bottom of the window. This gave Riley the y-axis, so to speak. He just needed to calculate the x-axis in order to line up the shot, which evidently he was able to do with one of the shots. As far as motive, some people believe that this was a situation where Riley was essentially saying, if I can't have you, no one will. This could have been part of it, but I think it may have been also about trying to protect a fragile ego, an attempt to escape the pain of not being with Emma. Riley had a number of characteristics of vulnerable narcissism, like insecurity, vulnerability, shame, aggression, self-centeredness, and a sense of entitlement. It's a terrible and dangerous combination of traits. Just a few hours before the murder, we see that Riley makes all these furious attempts to connect with Emma. It was all he could think about. He couldn't picture a way forward in life without her. All this time, he was disregarding her autonomy. He didn't care that she didn't want him. In his mind, she did not have a right to reject him. To him, she was incapable of making decisions. He was in charge. It was unthinkable that she would reject him. Perhaps she didn't understand how great he was, how good a partner he was. She didn't value him the way that he valued himself. He had to exert control. He felt he had to do something. Emma had all the power in that relationship Riley wanted the power back. He wanted to dominate her. He couldn't convince her to come back, but he could murder her. This gave him a sense of taking action to alleviate his pain and protecting his ego. He was protecting his identity as somebody who was superior. She had made a decision to reject him, and he was getting justice. He believed that what he did was totally warranted under the circumstances. One interesting element of this case is Riley's attitude toward prison. When he was arrested, he cried out, I don't want to go to jail. He pleaded not guilty to the charges, but of course was convicted by a jury, and he has appealed his conviction unsuccessfully. I think that some people who commit murder truly don't understand the consequences, but Riley appeared to understand. He knew he was facing life in prison. He made an effort, although a poorly planned one, to avoid being arrested. His crime was also premeditated, 
although I think he was leaving the opportunity to change his mind as part of his plan. Like he pursued Emma, if she had accepted him or had opened the door for a future relationship, he probably would not have murdered her at that point. But of course, later on, when he was eventually rejected, the homicidal piece would come back into play. So again, we see premeditation. It wasn't like he pushed her into traffic or struck her with an object he grabbed in the spur of the moment. He planned out the crime. He wanted murder as an available option, even knowing that he would be the number one suspect. I think this speaks to the power of emotions and the danger in trying to eliminate them. Riley had negative emotions. He felt rejected and hurt by Emma. He felt as though Emma had thrown him away, devalued him. His homicidal behavior replaced those negative emotions with even worse emotions. Now he's agonizing for at least 51 years in prison. He threw his life away completely to try to get satisfaction in that one moment. What lessons can we learn in this case? I have three. Number one, do not discount controlling, manipulative, or obsessive behavior. It rarely leads to homicide, but it does predict danger. It indicates a person who is not capable of a healthy relationship. Number two, young love doesn't mean safe love. Again, I think a lot of people look at this case and think that it's unusual because the murder was so young. In a way, young love can be more dangerous because young people are more prone to impulsivity. And number three, never lose sight of the big picture. Riley was too concerned with his feelings in the moment and will have a lot of time to think about why he didn't make a different decision. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com.